Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Kids, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you, that is on page uh, 1001. 1001. The book of Hebrews has always kind of had an intriguing pull for me. Um, For one, we don't know who wrote it. So that's kind of mysterious. Whoever it was, though, was an excellent writer. They have literary, literary flourishes throughout the entire letter that make it unparalleled in the New Testament in terms of style. It has some very mysterious characters like Pastor Larry mentioned earlier, Melchizedek. It contains some of the most inspirational verses in the whole New Testament. I'm thinking of Romans, in, uh, um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily tang- entangles Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are also points of the book that are difficult to make sense of. And Hebrews is famous for these warning passages that are just downright frightening. The book of Hebrews, kids, could be explained in basically two ways, having two purposes. One is don't fall away, and the other is endure to the end. Don't fall away and endure to the end. The don't fall away aspect is found in these warning passages that I talked about earlier. They come throughout the book. We see it in chapter 2. We see it in chapters 3 and 4 and in 5 and 6 and in chapter 10 and in chapter 12. And we see the calls to endure throughout the book of Hebrews, but we specifically see them in chapters 11 and 12. Hebrews is thought to be written in uh, 63 A.D. and 64 A.D. We can guess the audience of the letter by looking at the title, Hebrews. But specifically, we're talking about Jewish Christians. Christians who had come from a Jewish background or were Hellenistic Jews. Uh, Greeks that had, had, that had um, um, come to faith before coming to Christ. And some say the letter was written to Jewish Christians in Rome. Some say it was written to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Others say that it was written to the Jewish Christians of the diaspora when they were kicked out of Jerusalem and they went throughout the known world that that's how um, that this letter is written to them. But obviously there is a strong Jewish flavor to the letter as it relies heavily on Old Testament passages and references and allusions to the sacrificial system. That's why we started, we prefaced this study with the study of Leviticus. The author is encouraging the reader to trust Christ, not to return to the old ways of the old covenant. Don't return to the old ways of of Old Testament faith. Kids, if we're working through this book, there's one, as we're working through this book, there's one word that you're going to hear over and over again in our time together. And that is the word better. Better. 
Christ is a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. There's a better temple. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. This is a very important aspect of the book. Jesus is better. But you may be tempted to think, well, if this book had been, maybe if this book had been written a decade later, like after 70 AD when when the temple was destroyed, wouldn't that make all of these arguments moot? We wouldn't even need the letter, would we? And you may think, why are we even studying this letter? If it's written to Jewish Christians, what difference does this make to us? Why spend four and a half months thinking about this book? Well, God had blessed Israel's forefathers with a very tangible means of grace. Old Testament figures and practices and festivals, everything was a symbol to them, right? If we think about, you know, think about what we read in Leviticus for the last few weeks. The temple represented God's presence to them. The, the goat, when you placed your sins on the head of the goat, it was a symbol to you that your, your, your sin had been put on someone else and it had been taken away, it had been cast away from you. The golden lampstand symbolized God's glory to them. The sacrifices were assurances to them. The circumcision showed that they had been set apart for God. These all, all these things trace back long, long ago to Moses and to Abraham. They were very old and tested, tied and true. These weren't new inventions. These were very, very old practices ordained by God. And then Jesus comes to earth. And he taught in his earthly ministry that all of those things were pointing to him. All of those things had, 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 had pre-proclaimed Jesus. They had their fulfillment in, they were pointing to, and they foreshadowed Jesus. So Jesus himself authenticated those signs. And he showed them that they were legitimate. That was a legitimate thing you did back then. They were truly ordained by God, but now Jesus had come. And he took precedence over those. And so the Christian's focus of their devotion was Jesus Christ himself. The God-man who walked and talked and lived among them. And he died and he was raised and he appeared to them again. But then he ascended to heaven. And he's no longer visible. And so when Jesus ascends to heaven, they feel like they're left alone again. Now what do we do? Add to the fact that even though Jesus came and had, has given them new life, problems still remain for the Hebrews. They still struggle with sin. Yes, Jesus came to pay the penalty for that sin, but they lack assurance. Their consciences are stained. Their volition and their resolve is weakened. When they had the old system, they saw the smoke of their, of their offerings and sacrifices rise to the heavens. They don't have that anymore. There is a sneaking suspicion that maybe they've missed a crucial step in the Christian life. If the work of Christ was so definitive and if Jesus said it is finished, then why doesn't it feel finished? There are other people that may have been saying that wisdom was the answer. Yeah, you need to, yeah, you've got Jesus, but now you need to pursue something higher. There's a higher level of Christianity that can be attained. That will give you the emotional payoff that you crave. 
It's Jesus plus something else. And then there's the persecution for these Christians. In the old days when they were Jews, they were persecuted by Rome, but they were a protected class even then. But now it's like there are people without a country. Now they're persecuted by the emperor and by Jews. This is a real struggle for them. They're being jailed. They're having their property plundered. And for what? If Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises and if he's pointed to in the sacrifices, then why not let's just take a step back and let's just go back to those sacrifices. Let's just be the best Jewish Christian we can be in the old way. And we can forget all of this. We don't have to deal with it anymore. On top of that, add the fact that if Jesus, that Jesus hasn't returned and if everything has been fulfilled, then why hasn't anything happened yet? Why are we still here? We've heard of Jesus fulfilling these promises, but here we are trying to live faithfully under persecution and, and, and apparently Jesus sees it all, but nothing's happening. Nothing changes. He hasn't come back for us. How long are we supposed to do this? It's like we have no home base. We have nowhere to turn. It would be so simple just to abandon the whole deal and come up with a way to still believe in Jesus on our own terms under the old sacrificial system. And so this is the scenario that Jesus, that the, the writer to Hebrews speaks into. Jesus is better. It's hard not to apply. It's not hard to apply this to our own circumstances, is it? We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with conflict. Our consciences aren't clean. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we can't look at any instance in our life where we feel like we're doing it the right way. There's always sin. There's always fault. If we read our Bibles and we really think about the commands and promises of new life and compare them to the way that we're living, our lives, uh, with the way that our lives look, we have, an, we have a problem with assurance. I'm not sure I'm really saved if my life doesn't match up with what I'm reading verse by verse. How can we be sure we're forgiven? We know all about wondering if there's more to the Christian life than we're experiencing, don't we? We see the commercials. We see the commercials for the other churches where they're waving their hands in the air like they just don't care. And, and you know, it's the greatest day, of the, it's the greatest hour of the week. And man, they've got it all together. What am I missing? Why am I not that way? We hear of the books, the latest book that'll solve the mundane Christian life. This will fill us with that vim and vigor that we crave. We have our own lures back to the temple or back to the bells and smells of Rome. Maybe our faith is too modern. There are those who suggest that we took a wrong turn a few centuries ago. We need to get back to our roots, kick it old school. Maybe that's the way that this will work. The book of Hebrews has something to say to us too. Jesus is better. George Guthrie calls the book of Hebrews a strong encouragement to a beleaguered community. If we're struggling in the Christian life, and who isn't, we need to look no further than Jesus 
One author said, we can come to know Jesus better, but we can never find anything better than knowing Jesus. And so this is where the writer to Hebrews begins with Jesus. Let's look at verses one through four. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Don't worry, the introduction is not proportional to the sermon. There's three things that we learned from this passage. The first one is Jesus is God's final revelation. Jesus is God's final revelation. There are sermon listening guides on the back table that have these points on them if you'd like to grab that. Or send a kid to grab one for you because there's a listening guide on back. The second one is Jesus is God. So Jesus is God's final revelation. Secondly, Jesus is God. And thirdly, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So first up, Jesus is God's final revelation. We see that in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We know that originally God had a relationship with his created. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve through the garden in the cool of the day, we read. They had relationship with God. They knew God. But when they sinned, when they distrusted God and sought to live their own lives for their own glory to pursue their own purposes, they were expelled from his presence and cast into the wilderness to make their own way. What could they rightly expect to ever hear from God ever again after this? But God spoke. Even in the garden after they had sinned, God said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now that's something that we point to often, but even in that saying, God, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, We must admit that that's pretty opaque. It's vague. We don't really know what that means, right? It's a hard thing to hang our hats on. After all, Adam and Eve had just done something pretty unthinkable. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you will, for if you do, you will surely die. It's like the old saying, you had one job. And they did it anyway. And they were kicked out of the garden and death entered the world. But as Hebrews 1.1 says, yes, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And what did he speak? To Noah, he said, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. God intervened in the world. God spoke a message of judgment and of mercy to Noah. He directly spoke to Abram. Again, a message of mercy. I will surely make for you a great nation and the whole world will be blessed through you. 
but you will go to a country that's not your own for 400 years. And there was a message of judgment, but you will return here when the sin of the Amorites is complete. He spoke of promises and made covenants. He, he confirmed those promises with Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob. And he spoke through dreams to his son Joseph. And he spoke and led Moses to realize those promises. And he made a covenant with Moses so that Jacob's family, Israel, may be his people. God did not leave his people to themselves. We deserve silence. But God continued to speak. Messages of warning, messages of hope. Indeed, this is a valuable, unthinkable thing that our God would speak to us. And he continued, he spoke through the prophets. He spoke through David, he spoke through Nathan. He spoke through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Obadiah and Malachi and Zechariah and many more. The Old Testament was transmitted through narrative, through poems, through hymns, through proverbs, through parables, through love songs, through wisdom, through apocalyptic literature. Indeed, God has spoken it many times and in many ways. And it's important to note that God didn't just speak to Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets. He spoke to his people. He spoke to the people of Israel through them. It's a very valuable thing even today for us. In the selecting the books that we preach through, we try to spend half of our time in the Old Testament. Because we want to know those stories. We want to know how God spoke to the people long ago. And that has bearing and it has value for us. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So even by him coming, God is speaking. He's telling us of his character and of his righteousness. But Jesus also spoke. He spoke of who he is. He spoke of judgment. He spoke of mercy. He spoke of love. What does the author mean by these last days? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He isn't saying, well, lately he's been doing it this way, but he may do something else in the future. We don't know. No, in these last days, he's like, these are the last days. God spoke. God has spoken by Jesus. That is, that is how God speaks in the last days, through Jesus. We are in the last days. There is no other word that is to come after Jesus. God has spoken. It's done. It's complete. Jesus is God's final revelation. We don't need to know anymore. This is it. Everything that needs to happen for Christ's return has happened. There is nothing post-Jesus. F.F. Bruce said on this verse, the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ. But there is no progression beyond him. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament is second rate. It means that it is a partial fulfillment. It is speaking of Christ and pointing to him. When we have Christ, we have the complete picture. There is no other thing. Why is this important to the Hebrews? 
Well, as I said, this book was written in 63 or 64 A.D., and they don't have the full New Testament yet. They have the teachings of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles, but Jesus has ascended. So what do they do now? Well, I guess we'll just go back to the prophets. No, you Hebrews have more of God's final word in what you have heard regarding Jesus than the Old Testament prophets had when Jesus spoke to them directly. They know more than Isaiah knew. Ligon Duncan says, once you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father as clearly as you will ever see him until you see him face to face in glory. And even then you will see him in Christ. This is why when we preach the Old Testament, we always make the connection back to Jesus because it is proclaiming and pointing to him. John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. In chapter three, the author will take up that argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. It doesn't mean that Moses doesn't have value. It means that we're only getting part of the story if we look to Moses. We need to focus on Jesus. <clears throat> Back when the kids were little, we had this deal where every on Friday nights we would make pizzas and then we would watch a video of the kids choosing. And so that was that was Kind of Friday night, Graham would pick one and then Caroline would pick one. Sorry, Turner, it was before you were here. Life was not complete until you came. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> and so Heather would take the kids to the Champion Forest Library and they would get a video or a book or something. And so Graham, when he was a wee little pup, he was a big fan of Team Tim Tebow because he was in that uh, period. And they had like the unauthorized version of Tim Tebow's life. And so, you know, it's not a licensed video. It, they didn't have permission from Tim Tebow to make it. So they just took stock stuff and, and, and what they knew and what they could gather from news clippings and they made a video, made a documentary about it. And so Graham got this and so we were going to sit down and we we're going to watch it. Well, it's a video about Tim Tebow, but Tim Tebow is not in it. So they don't have, they don't have the ability to use his likeness. So they're cartoons. They're, it's a cartoon or, or cutout figures of Tim Tebow's life. And they talk about great plays he's made, and they can't show the play. They can't show any Florida Gator football games. They can't show any NFL games. They just show people like in red jerseys that kind of look orange and and uh, blue and you know an orange helmet. I mean, it's just it's, it's you know it's just very vague. You know, it's like mm, this isn't great. But everything they said in that video was true. There was no lies in it. Everything they had there was part of the public record. So they told you about Tim Tebow. But they didn't interview him. He never spoke. They didn't even have a picture of him walking through a parking lot. Now, everything they said, there was not one lie in that video. If you had never heard of Tim Tebow, it was a perfectly fine video to watch. 
You would learn a lot about him. But once you had seen Tim Tebow, to go back to this made no sense. It made you want to go back and say, oh yeah, I remember that. I want to follow back up and, and see, watch that play in real time. Or I want to watch the video of that. You would definitely want to know more. This is what leaving Jesus and going back to the Old Testament is like. You've got the real thing. If you go back and you just focus on the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, yeah, it'll point you to Jesus and you've, and you've got to go there. You can't just stay back in the Old Testament. It's going to give you vague, smoky, hazy pictures. But this, Jesus, is the real thing. And so when we are studying the Old Testament, we always, always point it back to Jesus. Now, am I saying there's no value in going back there? Not at all. It fills our knowledge of Jesus. It shows us God's faithfulness to his promises. It displays his patience. It gives us a long view of things. And it gives us confidence in him and the certainty of his plan from the beginning of time. But to abandon Jesus for that makes no sense. This verse has us kind of looking, uh, has a bearing for us looking backward and looking forward. I've seen Bible studies that have taken the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and blown it way out of proportion. And so they get so deep in the details. And so they're trying to figure out all of these Jewish customs and they invite Jews in to talk about what's happening here and there. They long for the tangible. They are willingly putting on the yoke of the old covenant and calling it Christian devotion. But we also must be aware of looking, the looking forward error that Jesus is just a major part of things that are to come. There are things we've missed. Maybe the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe there's, there's mysterious things in, in, uh, in Christianity that we haven't heard yet that we need to do some investigating on. Or maybe, like Muslims say, that Jesus was a great man, but there was a, a more full um, prophecy, uh, a more... A, a more, um, a more full testimony that that God spoke to Muhammad that that fills in what Jesus was lacking or the Mormons who think that yeah there's a there's another testimony there's another testament of Jesus after the Bible no we have the final by we have the final revelation in the Bible there is no more you have the complete revelation in your hand Jesus is God's final revelation Secondly, we see that Jesus is God. This is illustrated um, several ways in these four verses. We see that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance. He reflects God's glory uh, as, he, as he interacts with the Lord. He reflects God's glory, but he also has glory emanating from himself. He is the radiance himself. He is an outshining and manifestation of God's glory. They are of the same substance. It's not that Jesus is like God. Jesus is pretty close to God. No, they are the same substance. That's what we confessed in the Nicene Creed. He is of the same being, with the being of, uh, of the one being with the Father. Jesus is not merely like God. He is God. This is important because we're looking 
if we're looking to set our sights on something that would strengthen our faith, we should look no further than Jesus himself as he is revealed in the scriptures. There's no need to look at a statue or, or a statue of saints or ask for help from saints to get to Jesus. We have Jesus. Allow his words, allow his priorities, allow his actions, allow his explanations and allusions to the Old Testament prophecies to illustrate and illuminate God's radiance to you, God for you. If you want to know God better, look to Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature. We get that, that language comes from the minting of coins. And so they, would, they had a clay mold and they would pour copper or bronze or silver into it and they would make all the coins that look exactly the same. This isn't saying though that Jesus is just a good copy of God. If we consider Jesus' own words in John 14, he clears it up for us when Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father. If you just show us the Father, it'll be enough. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, how long have you been with me and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says in John 10, 30, I am the Father are one. He didn't say we're pretty close. Seen one, you've seen them all. No, he said, I and the Father are one. Tom Schreiner says, the Son cannot represent God to human beings unless he shares in the being, nature, and essence of God. The Son of God reveals the reality of the one true God. As we read, as Betty read in our, in our New Testament reading in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And as we sang today, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. We can't see God, but we have Christ who came, who is God, and he became mortal and visible to us. Which leads to the second way that this passage shows Jesus to be God that Jesus created the world. The Son existed as a person before the world began. He wasn't just present at creation, but God created through Jesus all that is. Yes, we have miraculous accounts of the Old Testament where God spoke, where God intervened in his creation. But think of God who created creation, actually visiting creation in the flesh succumbing to creation's limitations and constraints. Would you not pay attention when the creator shows up in the creation? I love watching the program uh, inside the actor's studio where um, it's an actor's college in New York City and, and they bring in directors and actors and they interview them. And, and I love the, especially when they interview directors because if it's a movie or something I'm interested in, I love hearing the director say, this is why we did this, or this is what I was after here, or, or I was trying to show this in this scene. I, I love that because it just gives you so much insight into the movie. But when we study and when we look to Jesus, we're gaining insight into the purposes and reasons God created. That's why the book of Ephesians is so, so wonderful to me. We get insight into the purposes of salvation. 
I'm thinking of Ephesians 3. It just takes my breath away every time I think about it when Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the, in child, in the Gentiles what is the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone that um, what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we study Christ, we know the purposes and the ends to which God created all things. But Jesus not only displays his divinity and his crea- divinity in the creation of the world, he also displays his divinity by upholding it by the word of his power that we see there in verse 3. The creation isn't a top that Jesus just spun once and it begin it continues to spin like a self-winding watch this just it's just in motion the way god programmed it or did it the created world doesn't run by the laws of nature the laws of nature testify that jesus is the one who upholds it and sustains it the laws of nature confirm the sufficient consistent continual role of the lord's sustaining power Think about this week. We can set our clocks by the Lord's sustaining power. We can set our calendars. We can do science experiments based upon it. We can build spaceships that boldly go where no man has gone before, and we can build submarines that plunge the deepest depths of the earth. Wholeheartedly relying and depending upon Jesus' sustaining power, the faithful and the wicked can count on Jesus to uphold the universe. The Canadian snow goose relies upon Jesus' sustaining power. The golden cheek warbler relies on Jesus' sustaining power. The Guadalupe smallmouth bass and the great white shark all rely on Jesus' sustaining power. Think of the patience that Jesus has shown us. How long can we contain, uh, count on his sustaining power? Until his purposes are fulfilled. Jesus could just turn out the lights on us. I'm done. Turn out the light. Stop the world from spinning. Shut the whole thing down. That's what we deserve. But Jesus continues to uphold his creation until God's purposes are finally realized. The next way Jesus shows us that he is God is linked to this. Jesus owns it all. Jesus owns all of his creation. God has appointed him heir of all things. That's what we read in our Old Testament passage in Psalm 2, 8. Ask ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession. Jesus owns it all. The earth is his. He can do whatever he wants with it. Where else could we turn? Where else would we turn other than the creator, owner, and sustainer of the universe? we want to know God where else would we go there's no one else right so we have seen that Jesus is God's final revelation we have seen that Jesus is God lastly we see that Jesus is the mediator between God and man I'm getting this a couple of different ways there in verse 4 having become as much superior to the angels 
It's thought that the angels were mediators between God and man. After all, they delivered, the angels delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. We'll see it in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, but in chapter 2, that message, the message, the law was declared by angels. Acts 7.53 says the law was ordained by angels. And so <clears throat> the Hebrews suspected that maybe there were these angels that mediated between God and man. They, they, it seems like they didn't really struggle with angel worship, but they, had, they were trusting in angels. So it's interesting that this passage begins with the word of the prophets and ends with an allusion to the law delivered by angels that Jesus is somehow superior over the law and the word. In the Old Testament, Israel's relationship with God was dependent upon three offices or three people. Israel's relationship with God was dependent upon the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet was the one that spoke God's word to them. They were given insight into God's thoughts through the prophets. Through him, the people understood who God was. They heard of God's purposes and his promises. They learned of his righteousness and his justice through the prophets, his wrath and his judgment. Through the prophets, they learned of their sin and their standing before the Lord, which led to frustration and, and fear because they realized that they were guilty before the Lord, and so they depended not only upon the prophet, but upon the priest. The priest who offered sacrifices and offerings on their behalf to renew their standing before the Lord. They would learn of and be convicted of their sin, and they realized that they could do nothing on it uh, for it. And so their sin must be atoned for, and so the priest served as a mediator before them, before God for them. And the role of the king, the king was God's agent to observe the covenants and the laws and to defend his people from their enemies and to rule with justice and righteousness. Here in the first four verses of Hebrews, we see Jesus as the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the prophet. He is the better prophet. Obviously, we see that in the first verse. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. We know what God is like. We know of God's personality and character by observing Jesus. We learn of God's perfect righteousness through Christ. When we hear Jesus' words and observe his character, we become more aware of our sinfulness and our need for cleansing. Jesus clarified the law. Jesus showed us the full weight of the law. He proclaimed the full weight of the law to us. And we knew that we were guilty before him because he was perfect. And we realized that cleansing was something that we could not do ourselves. But Jesus is also the better priest. His role as priest will be thoroughly discussed in the book of Hebrews. But we see it very matter-of-factly here in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he just moves on. After making purification for sins, he sat down. It's even more stunning when we consider Jesus in his entirety. Jesus, the one who created the world, who sustains and upholds the world by his power, who owns the world, the one who shares in God's nature and manifests his glory, entered into the world to once and for all purify believers of their sin through his sacrifice. 
Here in this verse, it's described in a very shorthand way. Purification for sins means his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But even though it's alluded to in an abbreviated way, it is a final act that has once and for all been accomplished. He didn't leave the hard work for somebody else. He took on flesh and blood so that he may offer his flesh and his blood in our place. Finally, Jesus is king. We see that at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He rules over all. He is the perfect king. He perfectly observed the law and its commandments. Who else would be suitable to defend us and provide for us and care for us and protect us? but the one who sustains, upholds, and created all things. He observes and meets out the covenant blessings. Every blessing that is promised to us in the covenants finds their yes and amen in Christ. We see that in verse 4 where he has inherited the most excellent name. What is that name that they are talking about there? Most believe that that name that he has inherited is Son. He's always been God's son in relationship. But the name he inherited here is son as in God, son of God and son of man. When he sat down at the right hand of God, he is fulfilling those covenant blessings that God made to David in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here we've, in this exordium, in these first four verses, we've barely scratched the surface, but we've seen today the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Where else would we turn? What else would we need that we can't find in Christ? Jesus is God's final revelation. In these last days, God has spoken to us his last and his best word. And Jesus is still speaking through his word. We're prone to think that we're somehow in, these two, in 2,000 years of silence. Nothing's happened. Nothing could be farther from the truth. These are the last days, and God is speaking through his Son. No further word is to be expected. Jesus is God. He is creator, sustainer, ruler, and owner of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature and manifestation of his glory. Why would we direct our eyes in any other direction to know God? And Jesus is finally the mediator between God and man. God himself stooped down, not to judge us, but rather, as we sang earlier, to condescend himself to us, 
to show us his character, to show us his perfect righteousness and power, his mercy and his grace. And he found us lacking. But he had compassion on us like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus became our priest, our perfect priest who became our sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that once for all paid for our sins. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. In times of difficulty and trials, we have a king, a defender, who goes before us and who sustains us, the one who sustains all things. And our king will one day come again. And he will bring us to himself, and we will find our satisfaction in him and him alone as we gaze on his face in glory. But we don't have to wait to that day for strength and encouragement in this world. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have not left us groping in the dark, trying to find our way to you. You have graciously spoken to us through your son. You graciously sent him to earth so that we may know our sin and that we may know your righteousness and we may know your grace and your love Father, forgive us for how we have turned in any other direction, Lord, to find fulfillment and to find hope. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that if we struggle with assurance, that as we examine our lives, we pray that we would see our own lives are lacking but that we would look to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, our King and our Defender, and that we would cling to Christ for our hope. It's in Jesus' name we can pray. Amen.